0: This is Dog Storian.
1: Stories about dogs.
0: And their people.
1: And related species. Like cats. And this is me, Justyna.
0: And this is me, Brian.
1: Oh. Yeah. Are we recording?
0: Yeah. Oh, this, I this forest is is nice. It's called the city forest or Stadtwald, literally city forest. But it has one significant disadvantage, which is the It's directly under the flight path to the Frankfurt airport, which is normally very busy, but since Corona, it's down by, I don't know, 90% or something like that.
1: Basically, if it was a regular day without the virus, we couldn't be talking with microphone here. But since we have this chance now, I want to ask you something. I'm ready. Do you remember your first dog?
0: Well, the first dog that I remember in the family not from pictures when I could see that I was too little to remember. The first dog I actually remember was one that chewed through the garage door, which is probably why I remember because I don't remember anything else about it.
1: Wait, what? What did he do? (laughs) Well,
0: we went on vacation and my parents in their youth and inexperience decided the best thing to do would be to put the dog in the garage with food and water for a week.
1: What kind of dog was it?
0: It was an English setter. It was a male. I think its name was Ransom, which is kind of funny considering that it ran away. And here comes another jet. But yeah, it, over the course of the week, trude through a solid core wooden door and fled. And I don't know if we got it back. Unfortunately, that's the first dog I remember. I know that we had a beagle first, but I totally don't remember that. I was less than five.
1: Was he named Snoopy?
0: I'd have to ask my folks.
1: They know that Snoopy is a beagle.
0: I'm not sure that I realized that Snoopy was a beagle.
1: I didn't realize till I read it.
0: <laughs> he doesn't seem very beagly, except for that spot. Does well,
1: but to be honest, peanuts people also don't seem very y <laughs> Well,
0: having had some long experience with some beagles, you see, yeah, he doesn't seem very beagly. But you know, Snoopy's obviously one of a kind. The first dog I really, really remember vividly was named Sugar and it was like our beloved childhood pet, also an English setter, I don't know. My dad had a thing for English setters, which are these white hunting dogs with uh, the gingery, you know, brown, orange spots. And he was into hunting very nominally at the time. He had a couple shotguns, and we would very occasionally go hunting pheasant.
1: Where did you live then?
0: Illinois. I grew up in Illinois. My dad had some kind of fantasy or dream of breeding her, which he never did. But of course, she did get impregnated by some stray neighborhood dogs uh, that ran over and said hello twice in one year. And we had two litters of puppies during that time, which of course was pure fun as, as a kid. And then again, cursed by vacations, we went away on vacation. This time we took the dog with us. I think we had two at the time. I don't remember who the other one was. Probably one of the sons. I think it was one of the sons of Sugar. And when we got back from vacation, we pulled up into the driveway of the farmhouse. It's a big, huge property, 220 acres. But the farmhouse was, of course, close to the highway. And uh, we all climbed out of the car, and we had all been cooped up for many hours. I think we'd gone to Colorado or some epic 24-hour drive or something. And the dog just took off running, and no one could find her. And I can't remember if it was my mom or my dad that found her on the highway. She was hit by a car, and that was it. And yeah, that was a very, very unhappy memory really traumatized my dad, who, of course, felt terribly guilty and also loved that dog. And my first memory of him ever crying, he was just in his room crying for hours. What I re- noted about it is that he didn't really allow himself to emotionally attached to another dog for decades until we got him his first Dalmatian.
1: Yeah, I guess that this is one of the most heartbreaking things you've ever told me.
0: Yeah, it's a horrible story, but, you know, sobering one, like you got to train your dog well and course be careful but you know the dogs like to run so could have happened to anyone but that was the worst thing imaginable you know.
1: Fortunately I don't have any really horrible dog goodbyes myself in my history. And guess what, that lady has a dog, she has a small mud on a leaf. In the, two dogs, now I see the second one. Two dogs in one hand and a stick in the other hand, singing in, I don't know what language, I in must, the middle of the forest.
0: I was just gonna say, I don't know what language it was, but it wasn't German.
1: Hey, yeah, well, you know, Here a goat. In my life, before there were dogs, there were goats. This is a story which I do not remember because apparently I was a year and a half or around two years old. We were living in my first flat, which I also don't have any memory of. My favorite activity in that flat was to steer through the window. So apparently in the yard in front of my house, there were goats. And that was the cure from all of my crying. If my parents or my grandparents had trouble with me, they would just put me on the window and I would stare at the goats, and I would try to speak with the goats through the window. <laughs> I I I am so sad that I cannot remember that because it seems so funny. So I had a thing for animals, pre dogs at least, pre cognition of dogs, <laughs> but the goats were a thing for me.
0: Well, let's face it, goats are adorable.
1: I I'd don't... be I'd be
0: happy to have some goats.
1: I don't really know how adorable those goats were because they were clearly kept just for milk and for meat. So, you know, I can imagine them quite big, chunky and meaty, mm. not so cute as goat babies.
0: doesn't matter when you're a kid. They're animals. Animals are awesome. They True. still
1: are. True. And, well, I also don't remember, but I know that I had a protector dog at my grandparents who would go beneath my crib If it was at the grandparents' at that time, he would just sleep there, sort of sleeping with one eye open, and he would guard me. And it was horrible because he was a barker. So if somebody would try to come closer to my crib, he would start barking. So that was the real first one. And then the second one was also that this I do do remember. He was at my grandparents' place. He was on Avermutt. He was extremely fat. He was like the size of a Dachshund, but he was like a tiny barrel around big sausage whenever we, we would take him outside people would just come up wanting to pet him especially kids of course but with every interaction you would get a question oh so when is she having the babies every time every freaking single time and i remember we were so tired of answering that that you know my child brain was just oh let's just make a poster and hang it on him I'm oh, a boy his name was a bear by the way
0: good chubby bear
1: Oh, but he had so much trouble, especially towards the end of his life. I needed to help him climb the stairs. They were living in the first floor and, you know, it's like 10 stairs, 10 steps. And still you would need to push him from the behind. (laughs) It's really miserable. I mean, it's also clear correlation why he was like that. Because for some reason, my grandparents just fed him with white bread mixed with some broth and sausages he didn't eat anything else. They would make like this mush full of sausages and white bread and some chicken broth and that was his meal. He would eat like this full big bowl of it, like ramen bowl, and would, you know, just get fatter with day (laughs) with every day. (laughs) Yeah, but you know, he wasn't also fun. He he was a barky and a bitey type. So you could pet him only giving him chocolate candy, which of course when you grow up you realise how bad it is, but Yeah, weird things happen when you're a kid. So what would you think if I told you that there are people who are actually paid to work as dog scientists? You're kidding. No. (laughs) Well... No, wait, a
0: wait a minute, we're talking about legit scientists like people who work at R&D labs or universities and they actually yes. get paid to study dogs. Yes. Why Why are you are you not in this field?
1: Well, you know, not everybody makes as smart decisions as, as other people. so <laughs> It's not too late.
0: Well, so if there are scientists that actually study dogs, I'm kind of hoping that they're going to be able to explain some things. Like, for example, do you remember the first time you met your best friends
1: No, not really. Why?
0: Do you remember the first time you met your dogs?
1: <laughs> I see. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Science <laughs> explain. Yeah, I mean, I guess yes, that question was sort of about humans, but but I guess what I was trying to get to is how is it possible that human beings and dogs are able to be together so easily, almost like a family, and it's not the same with lots of other species.
1: Yeah, that connection seems to be pretty special.
0: It is. And it's different from cats. I mean, as a cat person, as a as, as a sworn cat person, uh, you know, I will admit it's different with cats.
1: Future do. dog, cover your your ears with your
0: paws. <laughs> they they get along with this. I think they put up with this. Sometimes they even seem to like us until they don't.
1: Yeah, and dogs actually are completely opposite. They not only bear with us, they're, like, super excited to see us every time we come back home.
0: They're Velcro, yeah, and they're so excited. Now, I have to say, my last cat, I don't know where he got it from because he was a shelter cat. He was a street cat. Every time I came home, he greeted me like a dog. That is the only cat I've ever seen do that. He would come out meowing, roll on his back. You had to get down and pet him. He was amazing. Like, he was as dog-like as any cat I ever seen but it's unusual
1: and then if you would touch him at least slightly in the wrong way he would just go with his paws and claws right into your flesh that's why i don't like them they are unpredictable they are evil they have that evil look and evil nature but okay we're digressing Anyways, today we have a scientist who is actually studying that special connection between animals and people especially dogs and people I guess first, if you could just introduce yourself a little bit and tell what you do and, and where you are now.
2: I'm Clive Wynn. I'm a professor of psychology at Arizona State University, where I direct the Canine Science Collaboratory, which is a group of behavioral scientists who dedicate themselves to trying to better understand the relationship between dogs and their people and to help dogs and their people lead better lives together. Mm. So how did you end up doing the dog research? I'd always been fascinated by the minds of other species. And what got me was, well, what about the minds on our own planet? Can we understand the minds of other species? I wasn't only interested in the minds of animals, I was very interested in how people relate to animals. Mm. And in retrospect, it's kind of embarrassing to me that it took me several years to figure out that if I was interested in the minds of animals and I was interested in the relationship of animals and people, then the species I needed to be studying was the dog. (laughs) There's no animal that people have had a longer, richer relationship with than the dog. And as soon as I turned that corner, I've just been so professionally and and personally fulfilled by what I do. It's just magic. It's just magic.
1: So do you find there was one event which triggered you the most? Or I don't know, even maybe a dog?
2: It was really a building up of a number of small things. But I remember we went and visited a friend who had a dog, I don't know, visiting with my friend Bill and his dog Gabby, and seeing how they interacted together and how amazingly rich their life together was, that, that was a major eye-opener for me. From the scientific side, dogs as a subject species in psychology go all the way back to Pavlov, so that's over 100 years, but dogs have become somewhat sort of forgotten, and then at the very end of the 20th century, in the late 1990s, a couple of people started investigating the relationship of dogs and animals. One of them was Brian Hare, an American now at Duke University. And the other was Adam McClosie, who's Hungarian in Budapest. And they started publishing things in the early 2000s that I started reading. And I thought, well, this is very, very interesting. There's a rich scientific problem and question area to Mm -hmm. investigate. I want to get into this.
0: So when you set out to study the relationship between dogs and people, did you sort of state to yourself or your your university a focus on understanding people or understanding dogs or (laughs) really understanding this communication or how the relationship affects the
2: minds of both? I think, Brian, for me, it's always been at the intersection. I don't know if I want to say I'm more interested in the dogs than the people. I feel... Uh, <laughs> we can <laughs> really... We forgive you. But I, I feel that my, my professional background prepares me better to be studying dogs than studying people. It's always a bit of a joke. I'm in a psychology department, and a lot of lay people don't realize that psychologists do actually have a long history of studying non-human species. There is this assumption right, right. that a psychology professor is somebody who studies human beings. And I'm the odd one out. You know, I'm the psychology professor who's not that skilled at studying human beings. (laughs) I'm interested in human beings. Some of my best friends are human beings. (laughs) Uh, But my expertise is in studying animals, non-human animals. The human psychologists I have the strongest connection to are the ones who study human infants before humans are able to talk. Because then the methods and the problems are much more similar. But once human beings start talking, so the approach of the human psychologist becomes different from the approach that an animal psychologist yeah. would take. I mean, wouldn't it be fantastic to be Dr. Doolittle and just, just ask the dog, <laughs> what are you thinking?
0: Indeed. I'd, I'd like that technology or whatever it is that makes that possible. The brain implants, I'm, I'm ready for that. Just because I'm eager to find out how off we are because we anthropomorphize so much.
2: Well, of course we do anthropomorphize a lot. I mean, I think it's, it's very, very interesting how humans and dogs communicate, certainly for a human living together with their dog, I think they communicate pretty darn effectively, despite the fact that our communicative languages are so very, very different. So I like to, when I give talks, I start off by just talking about how do you know when your dog's happy? And people say, well, my dog, you know, his tail goes up and he wags his tail. I say, yeah, that's right. Most of the time, because there are situations where an angry dog will raise its tail and that can cause confusion. But happy dogs wag their tails. That's a pretty accurate observation that people make. But think about it. We take it for granted that we know what a happy dog looks like when, hey, we don't have tails. We don't have tails that we could wag. We don't have tails that we can tuck between our legs when we're scared or anxious. For that matter, we don't take parts of our own Bodies like our arms. I mean, you could take your right arm and wag it when you're happy, like a dog wags his tail when he's happy, but you never would, and you never meet any other people who do this. So it's really quite miraculous when you stop and think about it how well we understand our dog's body language when it actually has many, many major differences to our own body language and our own ways of communicating. But because we've lived together, you know, each of us has lived together with dogs for many years. And our species has lived together with the dog species for many thousands of years, and we've, we've picked up on each other. I mean, of course, there are mistakes. Of course, there are people who project anthropomorphically human emotions onto dogs that either the dogs just don't experience or they don't communicate in that way. We make mistakes all the time. But sometimes it's interesting to look at how well we do at understanding our dogs, and they seem to do understanding us, when our communicative languages are often very different.
1: I try to imagine how does it look like inside the dog's head? We have the language, as you mentioned. So this is our main mechanism, how we form our thoughts, our emotions, basically how we explain things to ourselves and to others. But how actually a dog does that? If at all.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I was just trying to imagine a minute or two of dog's train of thought.
2: Well, so we human beings, we experience the world, our dominant sense is vision. Mm -hmm. We have pretty good vision. We have very good vision we see three color channels so we rely heavily on color we see well in bright light also pretty well in darkness we're vision 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 all the way yeah our dogs they're not blind they're not blind they do see but the sharpness the resolution that they see is less than ours hmm. and the range of color that they experience is less than ours they're not completely colorblind they see something like the pattern of vision of a human who is red, green, colorblind. So they cannot distinguish red from green. Mm -hmm. So when you throw that red ball into the green grass to the dog, it's just two different shades of gray. So uh, don't (laughs) use red balls and green grass. Um,
0: (laughs) I don't think people realize that, the implications of that specific dichromaticism.
2: I know, I know. I was actually visiting a research center where they were interested in developing techniques to keep wild canids, wolves and coyotes, away from cattle. And they were putting little flags on on a fence. And there's some evidence that putting little flags up will scare away coyotes, at least (laughs) for a while. And the flags were red. And I pointed out to them, well, the coyotes, just like dogs, like wolves, are red-green colorblind. (laughs) So these little red flags, if they're on a background of green grass, they're just shades of gray. You should use yellow-blue. So we're vision. Dogs are not blind, but they're not as visual as we are. They are smell. Mm. Now, we are the technical word would be anosmic. We have almost no perception of smell at all, right? You can smell things if you put your head over the stew pot and you know, <laughs> sniff heavily. You can smell what you're cooking. And if there's a really disgusting, messy smell, you, know, you perceive that. But in ordinary life, when your friends are close to you, unless they've just been exercising on a hot day, you don't smell them. You don't smell the people around you most of the time. When you're out walking and another dog comes along, you see that other dog. You don't smell it. I mean, for one thing, you're not going to get down and put your nose in its rear end.
1: Well, it would be a fun exercise.
2: (laughs) Well, Well, so there are studies that suggest that if people would just put their noses closer to things, they would be able to smell more. And certainly you can if you want to have a fun time going around your neighborhood. And every time your dog sniffs hard on a lamppost, you could stick your own nose in and see if you could notice anything.
0: I don't think we'd glean the same information that they're gleaning from it.
2: Though. Well, right. I, I have to confess I haven't tried it myself. But <laughs> the bigger point is that for them, you know, this world, when we go for a walk, I mean, Alexandra Horovitz talks about this. Where, when you go for mm-hmm. a walk with your dog, Your dog has to stop and put their nose right onto things and other individuals and sniff hard and they are getting a whole different world of information. We don't know for a scientific fact what all they get from doing this but it's reasonable to assume that when they sniff where another dog has peed on an object that they detect whether this is a male or a female. If it's a female they probably detect if that female is in heat. They maybe identify age, size, huh. wow. and presumably they identify different individuals. Presumably they know, really? oh, Charlie was here just an hour ago. I better pee on top of this in case Charlie comes back and then he'll know I was here too, right? So we don't know this for a scientific fact, but it seems plausible that they are detecting many aspects of the dogs of their neighborhood and any wild canids. I don't suppose you have any wild canids in Frankfurt, do you?
1: Well, not yet. Not
2: that we're (laughs) aware of.
1: Jackals are coming.
2: Jackals are coming, are they?
1: Yes, we had a a conversation with Nathan Rang, Uh and he's researching jackals, golden jackals specifically. The numbers in Europe are really, really growing.
2: Oh, how interesting. I'd love to know. What about foxes? Because they have foxes are becoming more urban in Britain. Is that happening in Germany?
1: Yes.
0: Those, those we see in Frankfurt.
1: Yes, because we have a huge bunny population in Frankfurt and in Germany, I think, in the oh, whole really? country. Right, I know. Oh. For me, it was such a surprise as well when I came here. And they're everywhere. Basically, in somewhere around 10 p.m. maybe they come out. And once I saw also a fox in the area where the bunnies were just running around loose. Uh-huh. So, yes, we do have foxes in cities, not somewhere in remote wilderness.
2: Right, right, right. We have foxes, the same foxes you have, red foxes, vulpus vulpus. We also have two other species of desert fox. One's called the gray fox. And the third one, I'm afraid I forget its species name. But we have three species of fox and the major wild we canid- Of course, foxes are not Canis. They are Canidae. So they're not very closely related. But we also have coyotes. Coyotes are everywhere here in the suburbs. And they probably are scent marking. And our dogs are probably detecting those scent marks. So I've gone off on a bit of a tangent. Your question was, how do I think dogs perceive the world? Smell is central. Vision is present. Not as important. And hearing, of course. You know that your dog hears better than you do. Because if the people you share your home with, your husband, wife, children... When they come home, your dog knows they're coming home some little time before you do Mm. because your dog recognizes the sound of their footsteps or recognizes the engine of their car as they drive up. And so dogs are in a much more smell and much more hearing world. So those are differences. But how you perceive the physical world Is perhaps not the most important element to how it is that dogs and humans can live so well together. Dogs and humans live so well together because they perceive the social world in similar sorts Mm. of ways. Mm -hmm. And dogs are not particularly closely related to people. Of course, they're not. Dogs (laughs) are canids and we're primates. So, you know, along the carnivores, it's a long distance on the evolutionary bush. But, Dogs and humans expect and understand social structures in similar sorts of ways. Mm. So dogs, they're happy to live with us in our family groups, and they value, as we do, getting along with everybody who's in the social group. That, I think, is part of the crucial connection that people have with dogs, that our understanding of, of how to live in, in groups is pretty similar and and yeah, that, that enables us to live so happily together. Well,
1: that basically leads us to the very, very, very past when we just started our relationship to domestication. Do you have your own specific story about how wolves got into contact with people? It is a fact that they did get in touch, but I noticed that people tend to have a little bit of different perspective <laughs> about that beginning.
2: Right, right, right. Well, this... This, Justina, is something that um, utterly, utterly fascinates me. So there are two major competing theories for how dogs came into being. One theory can be called the hunter's helper theory. People who talk about this theory usually talk about a period maybe 30,000 years ago, oh, wow. back in the last ice age, our ancestors were really effective at hunting. And this theory says that our ancestors, they were out hunting. They noticed other animals who also went hunting. And among the other animals who were hunting were wolves. And our ancestors thought, well, a wolf could be a really helpful animal to me. If I had my own wolf who would get along with me, this animal could help me hunt. And so this theory, the hunter's helper theory, says that our ancestors kidnapped puppies from their mothers wolf puppies and raised them so that they would get along with people (laughs) and then took them along to help them hunt
0: Mm. and
2: that over time the wolves who got along best with people the people would encourage those wolves to breed so that they would over generations have more and more helpful and more and more friendly wolves until at a certain point Obviously, this was a gradual thing. It's not like one day somebody woke up and said, hey, honey, take a look. This isn't a wolf anymore. My God, it's a dog, right? Nobody suggests that's what happened. But very, very gradually, the wolf changed in its personality so that it became what we now call a dog.
1: Here I have a question. I am thinking, how intricate was human language and human just cognitive skills at that time? To support this sort of quite complex thinking a lot of prediction into a far mm. future thinking that oh i will maybe make wolves which will be basically my tools knowing that they were just surrounded by wild animals and had no other well at least a bit domesticated animal is that really likely
2: well right justina so i don't believe the hunter's helper theory i don't think it's realistic i don't think it's plausible and one of the reasons is exactly what you say back then There were no domesticated animals or plants. There was no domesticated anything. Our ancestors had no concept of domestication. So the wild wolf is a completely useless animal to try and go hunting with, right? (laughs) This is a period before there were collars, before there were leashes, before there were cages. So I visited a kibbutz in Israel about 10 years ago now, where this guy had three or four wolves that he had raised from puppies. What? The? These were the <laughs> oh, subspecies God. of wolf that we call in English the Arab wolf. And ironically, the only place where you can see Arab wolves is Israel because in Israel they are a protected huh. species, but throughout the uh. rest of the Middle East they've been eliminated. Yeah. And I talked to him about, well what was it like when you were raising these wolf pups in your kibbutz, right? A kibbutz <laughs> is a <Bad>. communal living <laughs> arrangement. There are people have their own apartments. And they have a lot of shared area. I said, did you have the wolf pups just walking around the (laughs) shared areas of the kibbutz? He said, what do you think I am, a complete idiot? (laughs) No, the wolves had to be kept caged up. And most of the neighbors were very angry with him for keeping (laughs) pet wolves because they were always trying to attack the children. And you've got to think about how we live, we modern people, we live in a world where children have almost been completely eradicated, right? Mm -hmm. I mean... There are very, very few children. Most women will, in their lifetime, most first world women will have one or two Mm. babies, right? That's true. Well, you don't have to go back all that long. My grandmothers had eight, ten children. Certainly eight, Mm. ten, twelve pregnancies. How many of those Mm. turned out into successful births? And then people who lived more than a year or two, of course, that's a different thing. But you've got to think, our ancestors, 10, 20, 30,000 years ago, their communities were full of babies and children. You can't let wolves wander around a community with babies and children. And yet you haven't got any collars or leashes or walls or fences. You haven't got any way of controlling these animals. So one reason this is a crazy idea is that you cannot bring wolves into a human community, especially a human community with very limited shelter and lots and lots of children. Yeah. So I went hunting with some native people in Nicaragua, the Mayan really? people. And it was a fascinating experience. And they have dogs, and the dogs are tremendously helpful to them in the hunt. And the principle of hunting with dogs is really very, very simple. You take the dog out into the forest with you. You kick the dog no. and tell it to <laughs> run away and find something. So to speak. The dog... Is quite naturally motivated to go and try and find things in the forest. Indeed, it runs after things. It can <laughs> run faster than a human can through the thick forest. It can smell and hear things in the forest that a human cannot smell and hear. that for sure. It finds things. It chases after them. It runs them to ground, so that it's now got the prey stopped. But dogs have relatively puny jaws. They're not that strong. Mm -hmm. They're not usually able to kill the prey on their own. So they cry out to get the human's attention. The human comes running. The human catches up. The human has some kind of a knife, a machete, a pointed stick. The human kills the prey. And now the human has something to eat, and he shares it with the dog. Everybody's happy. But it wouldn't work like that with wolves. (laughs) If you were to have a tame wolf and you were to take it into the forest with you and go try and go hunting with it, the wolf would run off into the forest. The wolf with its ears and its nose would find things in the forest and it would run after them and it would chase them to ground. But then it would kill what it has found Mm. and it would eat what it was found. And after a couple of hours... Or maybe a couple of days, the wolf would probably come back to its human. If they have a social bond, the wolf would return and the wolf would have a full stomach and the human would remain hungry because there is just nothing in the wolf that prompts it to call the humans to come to where it's killed the meat. It has no motivation. It doesn't need the human. So I think that what actually happened, some tribes of wolves became dogs all on their own. And okay, it happened because of things humans were doing, but those humans who were doing those things didn't know what was going on with the wolves. They had no way of knowing that the ultimate result of all of that would be the animal we now call the dog. The theory I prefer at this point is the scavenging theory. Probably 15 to 20,000 years ago, our ancestors were hunting and gathering, We think of hunter-gatherers as people who are always on the move, and many hunter-gatherers are always on the move, but from time to time, our ancestors would reach a spot where the hunting and the gathering was so rich that they would stay in one location for years, sometimes generations. This was often near water that this would happen. When people become settled in one spot, humans have a characteristic habit. We produce mounds of trash miles oh, yes. of rubbish right. archaeologists call these midden wherever people stay for a while you get these middens now from a human perspective there's nothing in that right these are shells these are bones that from a human perspective have been stripped free of everything that's good to eat but other species eat other things mm. and so if you were to leave Germany leave Western Europe leave North America and you were to go traveling in poorer parts of the world, if you want to see wild animals up close, go to the city trash dump. Right. Because city trash dumps are covered in animals. I haven't seen this for myself. I've only seen photographs. But in India, they have cattle on the trash dump. Jesus. And in those parts of the world where wolves are still around, wolves come and they scavenge on the trash dumps. Oh. What I imagine happened 15 to 20,000 years ago is that certain tribes of wolves actually became trash specialists. And they gradually gave up going out and hunting live prey and just specialized on eating what the humans didn't want. And And very gradually over time, this led to changes in the wolves. They didn't need to have such powerful jaws. They didn't need to be quite so big because they weren't doing much hunting anymore. Meanwhile, all wild animals, with good reason, are frightened of human beings. Animals that want to get the most from a trash dump, they need to learn to tolerate human beings better. And so you had tribes of wolves who were losing hunting skills and gaining skills in at least tolerating having humans nearby. Mm. And I think initially this probably went largely unnoticed by our ancestors they had no particular reason to care all that much about what the animals were on the trash dump. You know, it just was something that was happening. It was mm-hmm. natural selection. So that, I think, was phase one. Phase two came when the ice ages came to an end, which is, depending where you are in the world, 8, 10, 12,000 years ago. I always thought as a kid, when I learned how there'd been these ice ages and they'd come to an end, I always thought, well, people must have been really relieved when the ice ages came to an end because it must have been horrible having ice everywhere. (laughs) But actually, that's a really stupid perspective because our ancestors have been living in ice for hundreds of thousands of years and they'd figured out how to live in very cold climates. That's right. Cold climates have relatively open environments. If you have a forest, there's plenty of space between the trees. And in many cold places, like the steppe of Russia and further north, you don't have any trees at all. It's just a perfectly open environment. We human beings, as we've been saying, are very visual creatures. Open environments are great for visual creatures. Our ancestors knew how to hunt in those cold, open environments. But then, as the world warmed up, the cold, open environments started to close in. Forests started growing in places where there hadn't been forests before. Mm -hmm. And the forests that already existed started changing from really cold pine forests into temperate forests, which have a lot more stuff in them, a lot more grows in a temperate forest. Mm -hmm. And of course, the tropical rainforest, which is so dense, you can't really move more than a meter at a time without having to cut something out of the way. Mm -hmm. And so our ancestors were confronted by a really difficult problem and their hunting success must have gone way down. And they needed something now that could work with them to hunt in these thick tropical and temperate forests. And that's probably when they noticed that on the trash dump there was this animal which had sort of once been a wolf but had now changed. It had changed so that it wanted to be friends with them. And it had changed so that it wasn't that good at hunting on its own and was interested, motivated to form a hunting partnership with them. And that animal wasn't anymore the wolf, it was the dog. And that, to my mind, is when human and dog really first came together, 8 or 10,000 years ago, when the Ice Age is ending, and humans desperately need something to help them hunt. And that's where the dog comes into being. And I think, for my mind, that's the beginning of this tremendously valuable partnership that we all love.
0: There are two th- images that come to mind in the way you describe this process. One, up to this point, humans seem to have been pretty passive, and this took a long time. This took thousands of years for wolves to kind of slowly change and be able to depend on this more.
2: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, Brian. So I think as we get closer to the present, we have changing time scales. So the first phase, this phase of certain wolves changing on their own because they're specializing on eating our trash, that's Many, many thousands of years, unbelievably gradual. The next phase where we're noticing these dog things and (laughs) we're finding them helpful, that then leads to a sudden uptick in the speed at which things happen. Because just a couple of thousand years after that, people start noticing that you can use these animals in different ways. So probably people started selecting the ones who were most useful to them So, yeah, hunters might well have become interested in, well, you know, this dog's a great hunter. His puppies might be great hunters, too. Let's encourage this dog to have more offspring. And meanwhile, this other dog who's a lazy, good for nothing, if he (laughs) ends up fathering any offspring, we'll just destroy them. Which, of course, was something people did a lot, right? And then another, I think, basic function of dogs is alarms and guards. To this day, as I mentioned, if somebody comes up to my front door while we're having this conversation, my dog will bark at them. I mean, my dog is famously not the smartest dog you've ever met.
1: (laughs) You keep saying that. And I always want to ask, why are you so convinced about that? Because
2: I watched your YouTube talks and (laughs) lectures. So I'm going to contradict myself because she has this one skill, which is very, very useful to us. Our house is about seven or eight meters back from the road and the sidewalk along the side of the road. If somebody walks along, she can see them. There are windows at the front and she sometimes sits or stands watching things go past. If you're walking past our house and you keep walking, she remains silent. But if you turn and walk towards our front door, she will immediately Mm. bark up a storm at you. In fact, she's even smarter than that because if you guys come and visit, maybe one day you can. (laughs) The first time you come to the front door, she will bark up a storm at you. But when she sees me greet you, I don't know, we'll shake hands or hug or what we'll do, but she'll see us engage in a relaxed social interaction. She'll make a note of that. And the next time you come to the front door, she won't bark at you. Hmm. Instead, she'll do this sort of crying yelping that she does when (laughs) friends come to the door you can buy a camera that you could put on your front door and you could program that camera to have face recognition <laughs> so that the camera could apparently tell you whether a familiar or an unfamiliar person is coming to the door. Wow. But this is brand new technology. It's only come out in the last year and I don't know how reliable it is. Whereas my dog, who's generally speaking, not that <laughs> smart, she Low does tech. this all on her own. She figured this all out because her understanding of the social structure that we have here matches so well to the human understanding of the social structure. So yeah. I think this alarm function, this warning function, this guarding function which comes naturally to wolves, I mean it's part of the comes naturally to dogs, it's part of the wolf heritage, wolves alert each other to a threatening stranger. That's tremendously useful and I think some dogs would probably have had a bit more of this than others people would have started selecting if only by destroying the pups that they didn't want. And that started speeding up the evolution of the dog. And so you get this more rapid evolution. And then, of course, just in the last 150 years, you get this crazily intense selection to produce certain desired physical characteristics in dogs, which then is selection that's altogether too intense and too fast and leads to all sorts of health problems. So
0: it's interesting. We didn't ask Clive at the time about this, but the, what he's talking about, doesn't that presuppose that people understood, I don't know, basic genetics? Like, if, you know, whoever the parents are of a being, that the offspring are going to inherit traits, physical traits. I don't know, I guess I haven't really thought very hard about it, but what do you think? Like, were people very aware of that early on? I mean, you don't you don't need to know what genes are to kind of see physical resemblance, for instance.
1: Yeah, and I think that is the key because they did have various animals which would you know mate, and then whatever comes, they could trace back to one or the other parent. Plus, you know, look at us at people; <laughs> Their resemblance also is quite obvious.
0: Yeah, I guess what I'm what I'm saying is resemblance is a pretty obvious thing, but I wonder how readily people figured out. Or interpolated that to behavior because behavior is maybe more subtle. I don't know. It's an interesting thing to think about.
1: Well, when you think about like old sayings, you know, like mother like daughter and mm. apple doesn't go far away from the tree or whatever yeah. is the, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the English version. Yeah, like people did, I think, attribute behavioral traits as well to the genetic lines.
0: Mm. I guess as I'm, making, I'm outing myself as a non parent that I haven't really thought about this. Well, so you are
1: much. a dog parent. Let me correct you, which is very important. <laughs> So, in your opinion, at which stage the genes for hypersociability come into play? And maybe you could elaborate a bit on that.
2: Sure. So one of the most exciting pieces of research that I've been involved in, and I talk about this in my book, Dog is Love, is we collaborated with a geneticist and we were able to identify three genes in dogs that mutated in the journey from wolf to dog. And these genes lead to what we call hyper sociability, which is just a rather technical way of saying lead to individuals who are exceptionally loving. Hmm. And when you compare dogs to their ancestors, wolves, or for that matter, you compare dogs to any other species that you're familiar with, even our own species, dogs have a really quite crazy propensity to form strong emotional bonds and rich friendships with other individuals dogs are much more ready and willing to make friends than are the typical members of our own species or members of many other species now it turns out that very very occasionally you get mutations in these genes in our own species and this is part of a very rare genetic syndrome called williams buren syndrome it has a lot of impacts on a person But one of the really striking impacts that you see in people with Williams syndrome is that they are described as exceptionally gregarious. In other words, they have this very outgoing, very friendly nature. And it turns out that it's the exact same three genes that cause this very friendly nature in Williams syndrome that are the genes that are mutated in our dogs. So we've actually been able to pin down genetic changes that give dogs the propensity to so easily form strong emotional connections. And so then, Justina, your question was, well, when do I think that happened? Now, I'm just guessing. There is now a branch of science called zooarchaeogenetics, okay? <laughs> so you know what genetics is? It's the study of genes. Archaeo, archaeology is the study of ancient remains, zoo archaeology is the study of ancient remains of animals Mm. it's zoology archaeology put all three together and that means there are people scientists who find ancient remains of animals and extract dna from them and do genetic analysis of the dna of ancient animals i predict that within the next year or two our zoo archaeogenetics friends will be able to tell us as a scientific fact when those mutations occurred and therefore when dogs became super friendly. I am going to guess that this did not occur in the very early phase where certain wolves started specializing on our trash dumps because I don't think there would have been much demand for it at that very early stage. Right, right. I predict it happened at the end of the Ice Age When the ice disappeared and the forests got much thicker and our ancestors needed to develop strong working relationships with dogs. Mm -hmm. Because I think it's at that stage that an ability to bond with members of other species would have really started to pay off for (laughs) dogs. But hey, I could be wrong. I'm only only guessing. This is my (laughs) best guess. You'll have to have me back in a year or two. There's a, a wonderful zoo archaeogeneticist at Oxford University in, in England, Gregor Larson. And we're good friends. He's a wonderful guy. And we have a bet because he actually thinks that this genetic change didn't happen until much more recently. And if he's right, I have to give him a bottle of bourbon. If I'm right, he has to give me a <laughs> bottle of scoff. Nice. So that's another reason why I really hope I'm right.
1: <laughs> Thinking about the dog's attachment to people, I am also just completely confused why do they attach so much to us in comparison to their own species? When I say two dogs, they don't have this close relationship as they do have with their owner, even if they are living in the same household. So for me, it's just, of course, as a human being, it's incomprehensible. If I imagine two human beings put somewhere, I don't know, in a group of other animals, they would form the strongest bond between themselves, most likely, Mm -hmm. instead of just picking another type of animal.
2: Wow, Justina, that is that is a question I have puzzled over too. That is a deep, deep, fascinating question. Because of course, you're completely right. I mean, usually individuals from a species form their strongest relationships with their own species. And if they have any relationships with members of other species, those relationships are usually weaker. So, so I have thought about this. That's a, it's a really big, it's a really big question. It opens so many boxes. <laughs> and I don't want to just pull out everything, right? When you think about the relationship that dogs have with people, it's a very special kind of relationship. People provide their pet dogs with everything that that dog needs to survive and thrive. I provide my dog with food. I provide my dog with water. I provide my dog with, I mean, here in the desert, I provide my dog with a cool place to sleep. I provide my dog with opportunities to go out and exercise and sniff the world. I even provide my dog with opportunities to perform toilet functions without any risk of getting into trouble, right? (laughs) Is there anything in my dog's life that my dog can get for herself without having to ask me for it? I guess there's air, but I don't think there's anything else. I mean, she's been neutered, but if she was an intact dog, probably, right? Probably I would provide her sex partners, wouldn't I? Isn't that how it usually works? (laughs) So there's nothing, nothing in our dogs' lives that they can have, that they want, without asking a human to get it for them. Hmm. And so my present theory is that our dogs look up to us with so much respect and so much concern and so much interest because we make ourselves so essential Hmm. for everything they want and need in their lives. Now, we could actually test this. I don't know that it's realistically possible, but it's at least possible to think about if you have two dogs, you could maybe train one of the two dogs to operate a device that gives food to the other dog <laughs> so that the other dog could only get food. So dog two <laughs> can only get food by asking dog one, please press this, do whatever it is you do that gets food for me.
1: As long as it's not a get.
2: And my theory would be that if you could create an environment where one dog controls the life of the other dog (laughs) in the way that humans control the lives of their pets, then my prediction would be that the dog who's dependent would start sort of reacting towards the dog who's in charge (laughs) the way that our dogs react to us.
0: Be usurped.
2: But I I don't know whether that's really true. (laughs) I will say one of the most remarkable things that Charles Darwin ever wrote in The Descent of Man, which I think is 1872... There's a paragraph in The Descent of Man that still reads somewhat shockingly today and must have been pretty stunning to the people of 1872. He has this paragraph where he's talking about religious belief. And he's talking about the possibility that religious belief might have evolutionary origins. And he gives us the example, the dog. And he says that your dog looks up to his master in a way which is sort of like the way People look to their God. And um, and it's it's quite a strong statement, wow. even today. It must have been what a radical. pretty shocking in 1872. Yeah, for
1: sure. It's kind of obvious that we have a huge impact on dogs, and it's not disputable. I was also thinking about the other way around, about how humans are changed by dogs, especially currently. I've been having this uh, recurring conversation with a couple people from prison programs, where they train dogs together with the prisoners. And then they basically gain a big skill set and sometimes even have a profession after these programs. So I was wondering, what what changes do dogs bring to people? Maybe even physical changes. I don't know, some brain pattern changes. Is that researched in, in, in some capacity or, or not so much nowadays?
2: Oh, it certainly... Uh, It's certainly an active area of research, Justina. I'm very inclined to agree with the impression that you have. It's the impression I have from talking to people as well. There is good evidence that dogs encourage human activity. People who have dogs Mm. walk more and are generally healthier. There's a little bit of a problem in that somebody who's deciding whether or not to get a dog, they might decide not to get a dog because they don't feel that healthy. So there's a little bit of a selection problem there. Mm -hmm. But still, it seems pretty well established that having dogs keeps people moving more. The emotional side has been much more difficult to pin down. And I don't know whether you've ever spoken with Hal Herzog, who's a very interesting thinker on the human-animal relationship. No. And he has a blog, and he wrote about this recently on his blog, talking about how it was proving difficult to carry out convincing scientific studies that established that having a dog has emotional benefits he wrote in that that the part of the problem is that emotional benefits are somewhat intangible and difficult to pin down. I mean, if you just ask people how they feel about having a dog in their lives, most people will describe the dog as emotionally positive for them. Mm -hmm. But it's difficult to be sure how to make that concrete in a scientific sense. Mm. I was just reading Again, a thought I've already shared with you about how the world changed in the last 70 years that our families have become so small. You know, I was looking at some statistics in the United States in the 1960s, only about one person in seven lived on their own. Whereas nowadays, nearly one person in three is living on his or her own, which is something that people have been thinking about a lot in the pandemic, Mm -hmm. where yeah. I have plenty of the students that I meet with on on Zoom every week. And I know that these people have been completely alone now for months mm. on end. Yeah. So loneliness is a growing problem as families have got smaller and people have moved into living environments where mm. they live on their own. Surely it must be the case that having a dog helps you, that the dog is performing a function of companionship, which is a real benefit. I believe that. That's for but sure. at the moment, scientists are having difficulty kind of grabbing hold of that and turning that into concrete numbers. But I think that's almost certainly just because it's, it's a difficult thing to get a scientific grasp of.
1: And you touched a little bit now uh, on lockdown. And at least in Germany, we have a situation that shelters are being wiped out. There are no dogs. We heard the same thing from the friends mm-hmm. in the Netherlands as well. And I was thinking about long-term implications Of course, it sounds wonderful that people do take care of the dogs in need now, but how do you see it lasting?
2: Yeah, well, so this is a very interesting question, Justina. We have the same phenomenon over here in the United States that shelters have emptied out and new dogs are not coming in. The other thing we have in the United States, and I have a feeling that something equivalent happens in Europe as well, and that is that we have parts of the country, like the northeast of the United States, in any case, doesn't have that many dogs coming into shelters. Right, right. You have other parts of the country, particularly the southeast, the southwest, where there is still a production of dogs. There's still a flow of dogs into shelters. And so what's been going on for some years now in the United States is that you have trucks of dogs from the south being shunted up to the north. And because of the pandemic... That's largely stopped. So you're certainly right that we have shelters with fewer dogs in them. There's a tendency to say, well, now this is a problem, that shelters ought to have dogs in them. But I hope we can at least spend a moment thinking about how shelters are not a good thing for animals. We don't really want to have animals in shelters. We want to have animals living in families, in the community. Exactly. Animal sheltering is only something that sprung up at the end of the 19th century. Certainly, in the English speaking world, the first animal shelter in England was uh, what's now Battersea Dogs and Cats Home, which started in the 1850s, 1860s. And I believe throughout Europe, it's a late 19th century thing, and in the United States also. And before that, there were no animal shelters. Well, maybe animal sheltering was just a phase of human history, and maybe we could move to a world where we don't expect there to be thousands or, in the United States case, millions of dogs in kennels, concrete floors. Maybe we don't have to do that. Your question was, how is this going to play out as the pandemic comes to an end and people go back to daily life? And I hope that many people will have formed beautiful bonds with these dogs who they took on during the pandemic. The thing we have to watch out for is when we go back to normal life, to normal work. And one of the things that I worry about, again, in in my book, Dog is Love, towards the end, having talked about how our dogs love us, how our dogs are programmed to love us, how it's intrinsic to their nature and what makes them such wonderful company, that they want to form friendships and strong emotional bonds. At the end of the book, I talk about, well, what does this imply for how we live with our dogs? And one of the things that I draw attention to is this epidemic of loneliness in our dogs. We Mm. bring them into our lives because we love their friendly nature. But then having brought them in, we have busy lives. We go off to work. We go out in the evening to see our friends. And our poor dogs are stuck home alone for 8, 10, 12 hours a day. And in the United States, at least, the most common behavioral problem that people report with their dogs is what they call separation anxiety, Mm -hmm. which makes it sound like there's something wrong with the dog. The dog (laughs) has some sort of a mental disease. And that's not really a fair way to characterize it. The dog is a highly social being who needs and deserves company. You cannot just, you know, we have these amazing gadgets in our homes now when you go to work You unplug the gadget or you just leave it behind and forget about it. Your iPhone doesn't get lonely because you don't talk to it for a few hours, right? What's this thing called in the kitchen? The Google Home that I can talk to and it'll play music or do whatever I want or tell me a recipe. It's not sad because I'm not using it for a weekend. It might say so. But our dogs are different. They're living beings with their own mental lives. And part of what they need is they need company. This is something people are going to have to figure out as they go back to work. If you took on a dog during the pandemic and you had all the time in the world for that dog for the months that you were stuck at home, now that you're going back out, first of all, you need to structure your life so that your dog is not left alone for more than perhaps four hours at a stretch. And if you personally cannot always get home after four hours, keep in mind your dog's a friendly being. Your dog can make other friends. Maybe you have a neighbor or a friend who would just like to pop around and have a coffee with your dog. You know, your dog quickly makes new friends. Mm. Or there are what we're calling in the United States doggy daycares, which I think in other parts of the world go by different names. Do you have, do you have um, Kindergarten? Is that a thing in Germany?
1: <laughs> they also are just called daycares. Actually, most of them use, <laughs> use the English term.
2: Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, I mean, those could be very good. Dog walkers. Plenty of ways this can be dealt with. And of course, you might have more than one dog in the home. Your dog can get valuable company from another of his own species. Of course he can. But this is something we do need to be thinking about. And I'm thinking about this with my own dog. Now, the only time I go out is when I'm taking her for a walk. She's here. Say the word. Um, so now she expects me to be home almost all the time. And if I do go out, she thinks it's perfectly normal that she will always be going with. And once we start coming out from staying home, I know I'm going to need to just make some trips on my own just so that she can get used to it. Mm. And I'm going to start. I'll just go out for 10 minutes and then I'll go out for half an hour and then I'll go out for an hour so that she can start gently getting used to. Oh, yeah. Sometimes he does things on his own. I'm going to miss her as well. But, you know, that's 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 life. And there's no reason she can't get used to that. Up to some point. And as I say, if you're always going out, you know, you leave home to get to work, you leave at 7 30 because you've got a commute of an hour or whatever, and you don't get home till 6 30 and you just take the dog around the block and then you go back out at 7 30 to be in bars with your friends, that might not be the right kind of life to share with a dog. Wait till your life's more boring. <laughs> I mean, I I love dogs. I've had dogs in many phases of my life. And I've also had phases of my life when I didn't have a dog because it just didn't make sense, given how my life was structured at that point in time.
1: I guess for me, it just makes sense to really think about a dog as another creature. You might call it equal, better or worse, but it is a living being which does have specific needs and we need to figure them out first and then respect them. And I remember you participated in the experiment where one shelter took away the so-called labels of the dog breeds. Could you tell a little bit about it and what were the results?
2: Sure, absolutely. So um, here in the United States, I mean, different countries have different prejudices, right? But here in the United States, the label that is considered least desirable on a dog is pit bull. So Pitbull is not even a breed of dog. It's a Mm. a group of bull terriers and others and mixes and so on. Mm -hmm. And they have developed a bad reputation. And so we know it's very easy to, to analyze shelter records. And you can see that dogs that have this label Pitbull on their cage card, on their identification information, are much less likely to get adopted. Meanwhile, we know, because nowadays you can do genetic tests and you can find out the breed the breeds in a mixed breed dog. And so we did a study. We looked at, we did 1,000 breed genetic tests. And we compared the results of the genetic testing to the breed that veterinarians and shelter staff said were in this dog. And so we know, I've forgotten the exact number, but I think they were wrong. I think it was 90% of the time, they were almost always wrong. Almost always wrong. It's actually very, very difficult to do trying to guess what breeds are in a mixed breed dog. Very difficult to do. So we know that people are highly influenced by the breed identification of a dog in the shelter. And furthermore, we know that that breed identification is extremely unreliable. It's more often wrong than correct. Mm. So we thought it would be interesting to see, well, what would happen if we took away these incorrect breed identifications? We predicted that the dogs that would otherwise have had the label Pitbull on them, we predicted that they would get adopted more easily because many of them are nice dogs. Most of them are nice dogs, but we worried that if you took away the breed labels, okay, more bulls would be adopted, but maybe fewer dogs with other labels on their cage cards would be adopted that you would just be shifting around who got adopted and who didn't, which, you know, that might be okay, but it wouldn't be great. Mm-hmm. So, A shelter, a big shelter in Orlando, Florida, the big county shelter that services many thousands of dogs every year, they did this. They took away all the breed information that was offered to the public. And at the end of 12 months, they analyzed, or we analyzed for them, what had happened to the adoptions of dogs and compared it to the 12 months before when they were doing what was normal practice of leaving the cage labels on. And what we found was that there was a massive improvement. Dogs that would have been labeled pit bulls were adopted at much, much higher rates. Okay, that's what we predicted. But what's really interesting is that all dogs were adopted at higher rates. (laughs) All dogs were adopted at higher rates. Not just the ones who would have received a label that was unattractive, But even the dogs, who actually, if they'd had something written on their cage card, it would have been something that people quite like, like, I don't know, Retriever or Terrier Mm -hmm. or various things that people think sound rather nice. All of them were adopted at a higher rate. I was a little bit worried that this could have been just some kind of impact of novelty. It could be that any change makes things better. (laughs) We looked at their data for the second year, and it still showed the same pattern. By this time, they'd been doing this for two years. It's not a novelty anymore.
1: Did it catch up somewhere else in other shelters in the US? Because I've never heard about it in Europe.
2: It it has been instituted at some other shelters in the United States. Yeah, I'm, I'm not in Europe. Certainly wealthy countries in western, northwestern Europe don't have quite the same situation that we have in the United States because... In the United States in shelters, almost all the dogs are mixed breed dogs. There are almost no purebred dogs in shelters in the United States. My understanding is from visiting shelters in France, in Austria, in Britain, that you actually have many more purebred dogs. And that's a different circumstance. A purebred dog, most experts can tell what pure breed it is. So you get much higher levels of accuracy. I'm talking here primarily about mixed breed dogs which is what we have in most shelters in the united states what i think happens so one thing is that the dogs that are labeled pit bulls many of them are lovely dogs if you don't know what breed you're supposed to be looking at you just think it's a nice dog and you take it home that's relatively easy to explain what's a little more puzzling is why dogs would have had perfectly attractive breed names on their cards why those ones also got adopted more quickly. And I have an idea what might be going on there because a lot of people, when they go to look for a dog, they go to the shelter and they say, I'm looking for, and they name a breed. And they do that because in the past, they've had good experiences with that breed. And people think, well, you know, I had a retriever when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Now I'm a parent and I want my children to have similar experiences. I should try and get the same breed. And so I think people go to a shelter and they say they'd like to see a Golden Retriever or, I don't know, a Yorkie or this or that. And they have a name. And the shelter says we have a 100 dogs. Two of them have that breed in their mixture. These are the two. Go and have a look. And so I think people go to a shelter and they don't look at very many dogs because they think they know what they're looking for. And so they narrow down their search too much. And that reduces the likelihood that they actually go home with a dog. Whereas if they go to the shelter and they say, I, I think I want a Yorkie, and the shelter says, well, we don't really know what breeds they are, but we've got a hundred dogs. Why don't you and your kids go and have a look and see if one of the dogs speaks to you? Well, then you get that experience where a dog that you didn't think was the kind of dog you were looking for, but there's just something about that dog's personality, the way that dog speaks to you, that, that engages you. So I think by not having cage cards, it improves the chances that people will actually interact with the dogs, look at the dogs, and get to know the dogs. And mm-hmm. this is what's so crucial because at the end of the day, even when you're dealing with purebred dogs, they're still all individuals. Yeah. They still all have different personalities. And really, it's the personality of the dog that matters in the long run much more than its particular shape or the color of its fur. I mean, at the end of the day, it's sort of like how, you know, you meet people when they're dating and they, you know, you meet guys and they're like, oh I've, I've really got to have a blonde girlfriend, right? Or, you know, this kind of thing, the way people talk about people they want to date. But at the end of the day, in the longer run, it's the personality that matters, right? I mean, at the end of the day, whether your girlfriend, boyfriend has blonde hair or brown hair, blue eyes or whatever, that's going to sort of wear out, isn't it? <laughs> it's the personality that's going to shine through be for a longer-term relationship. And the way you adopt a dog, thats you should think about a long-term relationship. You're not adopting the dog just for a weekend. So it's the personality that matters. And even with impurebred dogs, even though they are so intensely inbred, it's terrible. Nonetheless, the few scientific studies that have been done show that there is at least as much personality variation within any one breed of dogs as there is between two or more breeds of dogs. So you've really got to give yourself a chance to get to know the individual and not worry so much about what breed they come from.
1: So what do you think is the best thing that we as dog owners or potential dog owners can do for them throughout their lives?
2: I, I, I'm going to take it for granted that people understand that their dog needs physical care, veterinary care, good nutrition. I'm going to take it for granted that people know what cruelty is and that they shouldn't be beating their dog or shocking their dog. I'm taking it for granted that the kind of people that would listen to a podcast like this know all those things. So what I emphasize is this thing I've already mentioned, which I think People too commonly overlook. And that is that our dogs are highly social beings. That's why we love them. That's why we want Mm -hmm. to share our lives with them. Because it's so wonderful having this highly social companion. But then we overlook that that means that they can suffer psychologically if we leave them alone too much. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying you must always bring your dog with you everywhere. I'm not one of those people. There are places it's not appropriate to bring your dog and you shouldn't. But nor should you leave your dog home alone for 8, 10, 12, 14 hours a day on a routine basis. Your dog is a highly social being and it's cruel to leave them alone routinely for extended periods of time. So that's that's my piece. Don't leave your dogs alone all the time. Keep them in good company.
1: Well, I also don't like to be alone for extended periods of time, so to me that sounds completely natural and normal.
0: Yeah, isolation isn't good for people any more than it is dogs, but you know, I, I, I can hear the arguments, it's like, well, I work eight hours a day and I have to commute and... Well, yeah. I'm black
1: and white, you know, if you work and if you cannot attend to your dog for over eight hours per day, don't get a dog, why do you need it?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a different show talking about, or maybe a different episode talking about practical solutions... You know, with social media, obviously, there's got to be ways to connect dog sitters and dog owners. and But that's a whole other discussion because the fact is, yes, human beings do have to work for a living so they can feed their dogs.
1: So do you feel that you know more about dogs now than you did before?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And I want his job, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure you do, too.
1: I want to be his dog. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we'd like to thank Clive Wynn for taking the time to talk to us. It was a blast. And I hope we get down to Tempe and visit you in the desert.
1: Absolutely. And do check out the book. I did listen to the audio version, but the printed version is also available in various bookstores. It's great.
0: Wherever dog-friendly books are sold.
1: Well, and you know, thanks to our parents, grandparents, who introduced us to dogs.
0: Yeah, thanks for making us dog crazy. We blame you, but we forgive you.